You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook.
things uh, quickly change course, people want to change the subjects, because oftentimes Christians in our world are seen as uneducated, or anti-science, or bigoted, or narrow-minded, or prude. And people don't often want to say that out loud, but many people think it. And don't even get me started on the challenge of saying I'm a pastor in the world. Pro tip, if you want a nice, quiet plane ride, just tell the person you're sitting next to, I'm a pastor. They won't say it for it. They'll sleep the whole way. And much of this is due to the fact that our world is more regularly referring to itself as spiritual, but not religious today. Spiritual, but not religious. We're great with ambiguous spiritual language. But as soon as it becomes religious, or especially Christian, people start to scorn. And one result is that fewer people now identify as being Christian than at any other point in American history. In fact, Gen Z is the first ever majority non-Christian generation in American history. First ever. And according to a recent Pew Research study, if current trends continue, by 2050, so in many of our lifetimes, by 2050, Christians are likely to be right around one-third of the U.S. population. That's less than half of what they were a century earlier. That's why when people find out you're a Christian, they treat you like a unicorn. It's because you kind of are in our world. And it's going to continue to happen more and more. There aren't many of us out in the wild. And this cultural moment can naturally lead those of us who call ourselves Christians to some difficult questions. Questions like how do we live out our beliefs in a world where it seems like everyone believes something other than we do? How do we interact with others when they believe that our beliefs are inherently primitive? How do we spark spiritual conversations with our neighbors? And those actually aren't new questions, you guys. Those are questions that have existed for thousands of years. In fact, much of the diversity that we experience in our current world is similar to what existed in the earliest years of the church. The very first Christians in their time and place had to learn what it looked like to embody and communicate a set of beliefs that was radically different than the world around them, and do so in a way that genuine, deep, and really thinking people could get by. We've been learning about the earliest years of that new community here at Midtown for the last few weeks. This series we're calling What's Next, looking at the book of Acts, which details the incredible transformation that the early church had on the first century world. And this morning, we get to explore the example of the early apostle Paul and his own encounter with a diverse and intellectual culture that's not all that different from our own. It's in his example that we actually learn what it looks like as Christians to embody the faith in this diverse intellectual culture and spark spiritual conversations in that place. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it up with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts is the fifth book in your New Testament, if you're in there. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind you on the screen, so follow along there. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers today with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This is because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we'd like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, 
I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an inscription, an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And since we're God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of the world. While God has overlooked the time of human ignorance, now he commands that all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of all of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to you. Athens, glorious, architecturally beautiful, intellectually stimulating Athens. At the time when Paul arrives in the city, it was the intellectual and cultural hub of the Roman Empire. Think like Oxford or Cambridge. It was one of those places where everyone was learning and speaking and questioning and wondering. Philosophy flowed like water there. These were the streets that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle walked. You know those great thinkers that you have napped through in college or in high school. You know what in verse 21, Luke actually hints at this obsession that Athens had with learning and philosophy. He says that people there love to spend their time sitting and listening and trying on new ideas. It was their favorite thing to do. It's like going into an apartment store and trying on new clothes for them. Trying on new ideas was their favorite thing to do. And given this intellectual and cultural status in Athens, there are questions that are looming over this text as Paul a Christian walks into the city. Questions like, can the message of Jesus hold up in a place of intellectual rigor? Can this whole Jesus thing really matter in a world of differing beliefs and ideologies? Can someone be someone who thinks and also has faith? See, the truth is that our questions haven't changed all that much from when Paul lived and when we live today. Many of us in our own time and place love to talk about and explore different ideas, and do have real questions about whether Christianity can hold up in our culture, whether it actually can matter in a world of differing ideologies and beliefs. Which means there's no better test case for how to engage our culture than Paul in Acts 17. He's going into a place where all his claims about Jesus are going to be poked, they're going to be prodded, they're going to be investigated and picked apart by everyone who's listening to him. A lot of people who disagree with him or who don't really understand what he believes. Paul has to learn how to spark spiritual conversations and embody the faith in that culture. One where he'll be belittled. One where he's an outsider. He has to illustrate Christianity in a way that will hold up to scrutiny. And as it turns out, he does a pretty good job in this story. 
And we can learn from Paul's example about how we embody the faith and spark spiritual conversations in our own time today. We are to go where Paul goes, we're to see what Paul sees, and we're to do what Paul does. Go where Paul goes, see what Paul sees, and do what Paul does. First, we go where Paul goes. Notice in verse 17, Paul, after arriving in Athens, does spend a little bit of time in the synagogue, in the place where people are worshiping the God of the Bible, but then the text says that he goes into the marketplace day after day, or every day. In Athens, he went with his faith into the marketplace, and that location, where Paul goes, is crucially important to understanding how we engage our culture today. See, the marketplace in Athens at that time, it was called the Agora. It was a place where all of culture gathered together. All human activity happened in the Agora. There's one scholar that puts it this way. On or just off the marketplace were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. All of these elements of human culture, everyone would spend their time down or near the Agora. You've got artists creating. You've got judges deliberating, politicians debating, businesses doing their business, news being pronounced in public, philosophers arguing. Everything happened in the marketplace. It was the public space where all goods and ideas and news and art were practiced. Which meant that this was the place that conditioned how everyday, ordinary people understood themselves and God. It was the place where ordinary, everyday people worked and made sense of their lives. It was the place where they were shaped in their experiences and their beliefs and actions. And it's to that space that Paul goes in order to spark spiritual conversation. Paul is revealing for each and every one of us in our own diverse world, we need to become people who go into the marketplace. If we as Christians want this faith to make sense to anyone in the real world, we need to become people who are regularly in dialogue with our culture. And that's a striking claim in a world that often likes to think of spirituality and religion as only a private matter. That's how we like to talk about it in our world. If you pay close attention to what people, including many Christians, think spirituality is, the message you often get is something like this. Spirituality and religion is only for the sake of my inward peace. For the sake of me and my agendas, for what it does for me. An inward center that allows me to reach my goals allows me to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Spirituality is good for many people in our culture because of what it does for us in our own private lives. But friends, following Jesus doesn't fit within that model. It's antithetical to that model in many ways. Being a Christian is intensely personal, but it's not private. It's not just for me and my agenda. See, when Jesus came, he proclaimed that his life, death, and resur resurrection sparked redemption and restoration for all things not just my own little private life. This news is for all the world, for every part of life. And the point of following Jesus is to become caught up in that redemption and restoration of all things, in my own life and then outside of my own life. So Christians are people who become inwardly transformed, definitely. But we also are to become people who have this spring of life that flows in us and then flows out from us into everything we do. The spring of the inner life shapes the spheres of the world around us. That's what it means to be a Christian. Your action is intrinsically connected to your belief. Your private life is intrinsically connected to your public life. That's why in the Bible, you'll never find a sense of belief that is distinct from action. 
There's never a distinction made between belief and behavior. Jesus always assumes that if you believe, you do, and if you aren't doing, then you haven't fully believed. We believe something when we act as if it's true, and our beliefs will always extend outward to the world. There's a, a famous story that's been told over the last uh, century or so, so about a, a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. He lived at the end of the, eight, or end of the 19th and into the 20th century, and he traveled all over the world to do amazing tightrope walks. And one day he was asked by some folks up in New York if he'd be willing to tightrope across Niagara Falls. He said, sure. And so he came, and this crowd gathered around him because he is an expert showman. So he shows up, and he's got this crowd in front of him. He's like, do you guys believe that I can walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? And the crowd goes crazy. Yes, we believe. And then he decides to up the ante. He says, do you believe that I can tightrope walk across Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow in front of me? And the crowd loses their minds. like, yeah, you can do it. And he's like, great. So who's going to get in the wheelbarrow first? <laughs> do you believe? Do you really believe that I can do it? Because if you do, then you'll get in the wheelbarrow. Belief always means getting in the wheelbarrow of the world, actually living it out, friends, with our actions, with our behaviors, getting into the marketplace. Faith in Jesus isn't just a set of private religious practices. It's for every part of our lives. It's for our work. It's for the way we relate to people that are different than us. It's for the way we create and grow and invest. It's for the way we watch movies and the way we read books and the way we engage our businesses. Authentic faith in Jesus will always shoot us immediately into our culture. And Christians, especially in the last few decades, have become notoriously bad at this. Rather than entering into our culture, we often isolate ourselves from it. Rather than living as Christians in public universities where culture is shaped and formed, many of us have just started our own universities and just kind of live in our own little Christian bubbles. Rather than engaging the arts as Christians, alongside other artists in the marketplace, we've created our own little artistic subculture with our own language that really only makes sense to us. Rather than engaging the hard questions of faith or complicated past in the church, the real spiritual experiences of our neighbors, we make everyone come to us on our terms. We isolate from the marketplace. And then we wonder why we don't have any meaningful influence in the culture. We've turned our faith into a marketing tool. We love to call things Christian because they have certain language to them or because they fit within a certain moral framework or just because we slap a cross on them. All of a sudden, that's Christian. And we've created a divide. A divide between the sacred and the secular, as if those two things are actually all that distinct. And in the process, we've lost any meaningful influence in the world. And that divide we've created between sacred and secular, honestly, guys, it's just profoundly stupid. The whole point of the gospel message is that redemption and restoration come to all things, which means all things have the capacity for sacredness and beauty and goodness. They don't suddenly become sacred or good because we slap a cross on them or use them in church. Think about it this way. What's more sacred, feeding the poor or making good furniture? What's more sacred, cleaning a bathroom or painting a sunset? Is the work of a pastor more sacred than a soccer coach or a janitor or musician or a painter? Do C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien get points off because they never explicitly mention Jesus in any of their culture-shaping fantasy work? No. All of those things have profound sacred power. The point for us as Christians is that we need to inhabit those spaces, bringing the good news of the redemption and restoration of Jesus there. I love how 
theologian Martin Luther puts it. He says, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. To be Christian is to be obliged to engage the world. To be Christian is to pursue God's restorative purposes through real and tangible goods and works and actions that bring life and flourishing to our neighbors. We don't just stand outside the culture and have our little holy huddles. We get into it. We get into the marketplace together. So in your own life, invest in the marketplace. Spend time in your local coffee shop. Meet new people. Ask them good questions. Ask what books people are reading. Or get invested in a neighborhood organization. Be curious about movies and TV shows and themes that people in our culture are exploring. Allow Jesus' love and grace to embody or inhabit how you embody your workplace. Paul is teaching us that spiritual conversations begin when we get into the culture and that's real time. But it's not just getting into the culture, it's actually what we do when we get there as well. We have to see what Paul sees in the marketplace. It's, this is mentioned in verse 16. He notices that the city is full of idols. See, all over Athens in this time, there were scattered statues to tons of gods and goddesses that people believed in and worshipped. This was so common that one Roman satirist at the time said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. So many gods were there. So if someone felt that sex was the most important in their life, the most important thing in their life, their identity sexually informed everything they did, there was a goddess for them. Her name was Aphrodite. You could worship the goddess of sex and beauty. If someone felt that money and wealth were the most important part of their lives, that they should invest everything they do in getting more and gaining more, they had a god to worship for that. His name was Pluto. He's the god of money. If someone felt that getting married, being a mother, and prioritizing family and kids was the most important part of their life, there's a goddess for them. Her name was Hera. She's the goddess of marriage and family. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples that filled the agora that Paul walked through God after God, goddess after goddess that you could devote your life to. And all of these gods brought Paul to a sobering realization that underneath all of the great art of Athens, underneath their philosophy and their government, underneath their architecture, were idols. Or, to put it another way, everyone in his day was worshipping something. Everyone had a single priority that was winning out over all other priorities in their lives. What Paul is seeing is what each and every one of us should see in the marketplace of our own culture. Everyone is worshiping something. While we may not have physical statues, right? That sounds foreign to us. If we dig underneath our thoughts and our behaviors and our actions, we'll find all sorts of gods. Underneath the overworking employee is often a worship of career. Underneath the pursuit of marriage is often a worship of relationship. Underneath the purchase of another house or car is often the worship of comfort. Under our social problems are idols, worship. Under our governments is worship. Under our moral problems are worship. Under our anxieties are worship. There's a, an award-winning novelist who's actually non-religious, but he also recognized this. His name was David Foster Wallace. He gave a speech at a place called Kenyon College that was turning into a book called This Is Water. He said this. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everyone believes something, yes. And that means everyone is worshiping something. And it's important to note here, the things that we worship aren't actually bad in and of themselves. 
Apollos, for instance, in Greek culture, he was the god of arts. Is there anything intrinsically wrong with art? No way. Christians, who are good Christians, actually engage art really, really deeply and well. Thank God for good artists. But is there anything wrong with worshiping art? Yes. Because when art becomes our entire meaning in life, when artistic acclaim gives us our identity and purpose for existence, that's when it becomes destructive to us. There's nothing wrong with longing to make good art, longing to have a good job, longing to be in a good relationship or wanting a successful business. It's when we've made those things the center of our lives, when we've made those the things that give us meaning that we ultimately destroy ourselves. It always happens to us. It's guaranteed to happen to us. We worship things that pass away, and then we wonder why, when they pass away, we don't want to live anymore. When you worship the wrong things, they will crumble under the weight you've placed upon Worship a relationship, and you'll quickly find that that person lets you down routinely. Ask anybody in this room who's married. Ask my wife. She will tell you I am never to be an object of worship. <laughs> worship your body or beauty. If you worship your body or your beauty, you'll die a million deaths with every wrinkle. A million deaths with every inking joint. Worship your career, and you'll find that there's never quite enough work that can satisfy the deep longing for identity of love in your soul. There's a famous example of this uh, film director. Of course, I'm a film director and writer as my example. His name's Pete Docter. If you guys haven't heard of him, he wrote a pretty successful movie called Inside Out for Pixar. Brilliant, brilliant writer and thinker. He's an animator who works for decades at his craft. And Inside Out, when he wrote and made that movie, it actually won an Oscar. He got to go up and get the highest possible award in his career, in his field. He got to the peak. It was an amazing night. And then he got home and he looked at his Oscar and he felt this deep, deep hole inside of him. His soul was not fully satisfied by this literal idol in front of him. And it's actually what caused him to write his next movie, which is called Soul, another Pixar movie, and it's all about a man who gets everything he wants and still isn't satisfied. When you worship the wrong things, friends, you can get to the pinnacle and you'll still feel empty. Or, if that's not the case, then you'll just keep seeking more and more and more. If those things don't crumble before us, they'll just become, well, our masters will become slaves to them. If you worship money or goods, you'll become someone who never quite has enough. John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, was once asked in an interview how much money was enough. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Worship your intelligence and you'll always feel a little dumb, like you're a fraud. Like somebody will find you out eventually, and no amount of books or podcasts will ever get you to where you want to go. What Paul sees in Athens is that all of these people are going about their lives chasing after gods that will only lead them to destruction, to death. And he's reminding us that when we embody our faith by going into the marketplace, we need to learn how to spark spiritual conversations about what people are worshiping. And it's actually not as awkward as you might think. Maybe we wouldn't use the word worship because our culture is much less religious, right? But we probably still use language like, hey, what's the most important thing to you? What's the thing that drives all of your life? And what's fascinating is when we ask that question of our neighbors, they're often really appreciative of it because much of the time in our American life, we just kind of cruise through our days. We don't really think about practically what's motivating us. And so when you ask that question, they're like, oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Or maybe they do know and they realize, oh, I don't want that to be the center of my life. I'm realizing now because you've asked me that I'm overworking. I'm realizing now that I'm neglecting my kids. I'm realizing that I've maybe elevated my spouse beyond where they should be. 
When we ask this question, friends, it causes amazing spiritual reflection in our neighbors. That's what we ought to be doing. The simple question, what is the thing that if it were to go away will mean my life is no longer worth living? That question will always lead us to what we worship. It's a great one to ask our friends and our neighbors. So not only do we go where Paul goes, we need to see what Paul sees, and we actually need to help our neighbors get real clarity on what they believe, on what's driving them in their lives. And that will open them up to the possibility that maybe they're worshiping the wrong things in the wrong ways. And maybe we could give some insight on how we've worshiped the wrong things in the wrong ways and what's changed for us. So we go where Paul goes, we see what Paul sees, but we also embody the faith and spark spiritual conversations by doing what Paul did. Notice in this passage, as Paul takes in all these idols, the text says he was deeply distressed. The scholars have actually gathered together to produce an image that they think captures well the Greek word that describes Paul's emotions here. This is what the image looks like, what scholars keep up. Yeah, that's That's what happens when you type in distress on your iPhone, by the way. That's the word that comes up. This is distress. When we see as Paul sees in this way, it should distress us. It should cause great agony in us. The word here is indicating a sort of sustained and compassionate agony and grief. This isn't just outright anger or wrath that Paul feels, but it also isn't just pity. It was a deeply passionate longing for these people to be freed from their captivity to idols, to worship the thing that really was unable to fulfill, to stop that sort of worship. And this emotion is what leads him into his action. It's only when he deeply feels the pains and unfulfilled longings of his neighbors that he actually starts to embody his faith and get into his culture. In other words, once we've seen the things that people worship in our time, We need to deeply feel the need that our world has for restoration, for life. We need to be people whose hearts break over the brokenness of our lives and our world, whose lives matter towards our neighbors. We should be appalled at the idolatry of self or wealth or power or sex or money in our culture, and we should become people who move towards our neighbors because of how we feel. See, oftentimes as Christians, we tend to lean one way or the other in this. When we feel distressed, we lean toward outright condemnation or outright affirmation. Many people in our culture will see the broken world and think, oh, those terrible people, those terrible pagans out there, how terrible they are. And they don't actually engage their world meaningfully. They don't actually love their neighbors. They've forgotten that the same things that their neighbors worship are often the same things that they have worshipped. But then some people swing the pendulum the other way. They go into outright affirmation. They have so much compassion for their neighbors that they don't actually want to mention these things. And so they just kind of go along with them. Sometimes they outright affirm it, sometimes they don't say anything, but they either way are allowing their neighbors to continue and to destroy their lives with unhealthy worship. Paul manages to avoid outright condemnation and outright affirmation because he experiences distress and then that leads him to action. Friends, if we're not distressed by the world, then we're not awake to it. And if we're not in love with the world, then we'll never change it. If we're not distressed by the world, then we're not awake to it. And if we're not in love with the world, we'll never change it. And this distress of Paul leads him to the Areopagus. This was the council where all ideas were examined and put to the test in that day. The greatest minds of his time are about to poke and prod and try to refute what he's getting at here. And what we see Paul do in this situation is something that we need to learn how to do as well. He respects the texts of his culture, and then he builds a bridge to his culture, respects the text, 
and builds a bridge. First, he respects the text by indicating that he's listened really well to his neighbors. For instance, he notices how extremely religious they are. And in our day, that feels like a diss. That wasn't a diss back then. It was actually a way of saying, hey, I see that you guys are really devout to what you believe. I see that you have a commitment to what you're doing. And he actually starts to quote their own philosophers back at them. That's a fascinating part of this text. It's like he's looking around and seeing the songs or the poetry or the music of his culture, and then he recites it back to them. And says that that's actually the starting point for where he's, what he's getting at. He says, in him we live, move, and have our being, and we are his offspring. Those are quotes from ancient Greek poets, not from Paul. He didn't make that up. You guys, if we're to have any meaningful headway in our spiritual conversations with others, we need to become really good listeners. Really good listeners. Listen well to the things that people say they believe. Don't dismiss them outright. Pay attention to the things that are resonating with them, the experiences that they're seeking, the moments that are prompting spiritual longing in them. Because when we listen well, we actively embody the love of Christ for our neighbor, and we open the door for more trusting and genuine spiritual conversation. Respect the text. We also respect the text by using language that people will understand. Notice in the sermon that Paul gives at the Areopagus, he never once mentions the Hebrew Bible. Doesn't happen. Why? Because these people aren't Hebrew. They don't know the Hebrew texts. They aren't familiar with them. And so if he used his language to describe spiritual experience, it would go right over their head. He uses language that makes sense to them. Because he knows that if this message is going to matter at all to the person he's speaking to, it has to speak their language. It has to resonate with what they're experiencing and going through. He respects his neighbor enough to communicate about the gospel using their artistic preferences, using their poetic structures, using their spiritual themes. And he brings the gospel through those things. He's trusting that God has already been at work in their lives. So we respect the text of our culture by listening really well to our neighbors and then by speaking the language that they speak. And then, once we've done that, once we've indicated that, then we build a bridge. Notice in Paul's sermon, he mentions that in all of this listening, all this exploring, all this respecting the text of the Athenians, he noticed an empty altar, a pedestal, that was just labeled to an unknown god, which is fascinating, right? I mean, these people had hundreds of gods to worship, hundreds of things that they could devote their lives to, and yet they implicitly still knew that there was something else, that there was something more, that none of these earthly things they were worshiping could really satisfy, and so they just put it on the pedestal and said, well, there's something else out there, and we just don't know. To an unknown God, they have this deep spiritual longing. And Paul says, that's where I'm going to build the bridge. He says to these Athenians, guys, you know that altar to the unknown God that you have? That longing that you have for real fulfillment that you can never quite grasp? I know what you're longing for. I know what you're missing. I know because I've found it. Or maybe better yet, it's found in me. It actually isn't in it at all. It's a he. His name is Jesus. That unknown God, that thing that you've been looking for to satisfy the deepest parts of your soul, I know him. His name's Jesus. He's come so that you could know. He's come so that all of this broken worship can get judged. And so that true life, true resurrection, true lasting eternal life can be had in him. He loves you. He's come for you. He's come to satisfy that deep longing in you. You see how he builds a bridge? to what they're already experiencing. He doesn't give them a predetermined script. He doesn't give them a tract or brochure. He sees exactly what they're going through. He knows precisely 
what they worship and the ways that those things have failed them. And that's when he speaks to them. He listens well and he builds a bridge. You guys, embodying our faith and sparking spiritual conversations in this diverse world means we have to do what Paul did. We've got to respect the text really well. Listen for the greatest anxieties in people's life. Listen for their greatest hopes. And then, once you've listened, once you've really understood them, then find a way to build a bridge into those things in a way that makes sense to them, in a way that speaks their language. Speak of the hope that's in you in a way that connects to their story. Because everyone believes in something. And everyone is worshiping something. In a world where it can be challenging for us to navigate those things, we're reminded by Paul here how we embody the faith, how we spark spiritual conversations and invest in our culture. We need to go where Paul goes, into the marketplace. We need to see what Paul sees, worship of all of these destructive things, and then we need to do what Paul does. Respect the text and build a bridge. And when we do that, you guys, it will spark amazing, amazing things in the lives of us. We've had not one, but two skeptics Bible studies that have been formed here at Midtown, people who would never otherwise be remotely interested in Jesus, that have all come because I've walked my dog and asked people these sorts of questions. Ask what's most important to them. Learn about their lives. And all of a sudden, these people who never wanted to talk about Jesus beforehand are gathering in a room and reading the Bible and talking about Jesus together. It's amazing. So the Spirit of God will do when we are faithful in this way in our own culture. So will we at Midtown be these sorts of people, providing space for our neighbors, ask questions, to dialogue, to poke and to cry, and to learn, there might actually be something to fulfill that deep longing. That that person might actually be Jesus. Let's pray.